In 2002, two-year-old Jahi Turner disappeared in San Diego. The toddler's disappearance was followed by an extensive search, no answers, and 16 years later, a trial for Jahi's stepfather. In 2020, Turner's mother, Tamika Jones, still doesn't have any answers, and despite the slim chances, she still has a shred of hope that one day she'll learn what happened to her son. Here's why she's speaking out now, 18 years later. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Dan Littlefield, you're the public safety editor for the San Diego Union Tribune, and you've been covering the story for quite some time, and this is a complicated tragedy. Can you start by retelling the disappearance of Turner in 2002? Yeah, so um, so way back in 2002, this happened to follow another very high-profile child disappearance, that of a seven-year-old girl from the Sabre Springs neighborhood, and that was in February of 2002. The community was already reeling from that, and then two months later, you had this two-year-old go missing, Jahi. Um, his stepfather... Um, had uh, had care of him at the time. Jahi's mother was deployed on a Navy ship. She was supposed to be out on the ship for a week. So she did what she could to prepare, leave her boy and her then husband um, in good shape for the week while she would be gone. Um, she was gone about four days and then got a call from her step, her, excuse me, from her husband, Jahi's stepfather, saying that the boy was gone, that he had vanished from a neighborhood park, um, sort of in the, in the Balboa Park area. Mm-hmm. And during that initial search, what information was gleaned? Because I imagine, you know, this was all eyes trying to find this child. Yes. So um, one thing that was hard to say beneficial given the circumstances that we're talking about, but because there had just been this massive massive search for the seven-year-old, Danielle Van Dam, people were already kind of geared up or at the ready um, to mobilize again. Um, it, so, so you had thousands of volunteers out combing the area. Of course, the detectives, San Diego Police Department was all over this. They were searching the park. They were searching the surrounding neighborhoods. They were searching uh, the canyons. They, every, everyone who could be, it seemed, was out looking for Jahi at this time. Uh, but police said that the story didn't really make sense. What they were hearing at the time from the stepfather didn't really make a lot of sense, that he had basically walked away from this two-year-old. Um, apparently, he said there was a, a woman and some children nearby, uh, but he walked away to go get a drink for this toddler. And he said he you know, just turned his back for a second. At some point, he said you know, he just walked you know, a relatively short dif- distance away, but it was a very long distance. It was more than the length of a football field. Um, and, uh, and, and so things like that really began to make police think something's not right here. Something's not adding up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like that's kind of as far as it went. And from what do we know, how did Tamika respond to all of this because she was on the ship when this all was happening, right? Yes, she was on the ship. So on the Thursday of this of that week, that was April 25th, 2002, she gets the call from her husband. Um, they actually turn the ship around 
and bring her back to Cor Coronado where she can be taken off the ship. Um, she is immediately scooped up by police detectives and they tell her what the situation is. Very early on, um, she sees that they are questioning her husband quite heavily. And this angers her, you know, she's thinking, um, you know, why are you wasting time? It's essentially what she was thinking at the time. You know, why are you, why are you not out there looking for my boy? Why are you taking the time to talk to my husband when you should be out there looking for Jahi? That was her attitude at the time. And she was very supportive of her husband. He was a support to her at that time. And given some other circumstances in her life, she felt like, you know, this is my person. This is the person I can count on. So it really, really bothered her that um, he was being treated in this way by police at the time. That was her attitude then. That, of course, changed. Mm -hmm. And at what point in 2002 did this case really go cold? Well, um, it's hard to say uh, specifically. Um, picking up on my last point, you know, Tamika was, was annoyed. It seemed like the police weren't out looking, but they definitely were out looking. And all of these volunteers were out there um, making this concerted effort to try to find her son. Um, that went on for quite some time. And eventually that search even went into the landfill, um, the Miramar landfill specifically. You had um, police officers, you had investigators combing through the trash looking for the remains of this little boy. Um, so again, that went on for, for some time. And eventually within that year, again, he went missing in April. So this was going on for several weeks, weeks and then months passed and there were, there were no new clues or at least not ones that were reliable. So police were getting tips um, from people saying, you know, I saw him or I know what happened or I can help you find him. And this kind of led to a lot of um, uh, dead ends, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, so eventually, you know, we get into 2003 and there still is nothing solid, according to the police, that um, are, you know, that indicate to them that they can file charges. And so the case gets shelved. Mm -hmm. And then there's a long stretch of time in which nothing really happens in this case. But then everything changed uh, several years ago. Can you set the scene? What were the series of events that led to the trial of the stepfather? Well, at some point, um, at some point, Tamika went back to she had been in San Diego, of course. She went back to the state where she's from, which is Maryland. And so did her, her then husband. They separated. And they had another child together. Um, and so that was the connection between the two of them. But their relationship really went downhill. Um, you know, there could be all sorts of factors as to why that happened. But one for sure was the fact that Jahi was still gone and, and Tamika didn't have the answers. Tamika Jones didn't have the answers that she was looking for. Uh, and there was still this cloud of suspicion over her then husband. So once they finally did separate and they did divorce, what I was told was that the police investigators, one in particular, Mo Parga, um, kind of looked at that as an op opportunity 
to go back to Tamika and talk to her again and see if maybe she would be um, more of a participant in the in the investigation of this case, the ongoing investigation of this case. And this was one that, um, yes, it had been a, co a cold case, but Mo Parga and others went back to this case and they opened it up again and, and asked more questions. Um, they didn't want to let it go. Parga said in particular that, you know, it really bothered her that the case had been shelved so many years before. So she was the one who recruited others within the police department and outside the police department, specifically within the DA's office, uh, to see if they could take another run at this case. Mm -hmm. And just how unprecedented is that, that, you know, more than a decade, a, a case just is cold and then it comes back? Well, I mean, it, it does happen. Um, you know, there are cold cases that are reopened. Um, there, it, it happens many times where no new evidence is uncovered or um, no reason to go forward with it again. In this case, uh, the prosecutors felt that they did have something that was prosecutable. That's the way they put it. Um, so I mentioned that Mo, Mo Parga, Detective Mo Parga, she, um, she reached out to a prosecutor within the San Diego County District Attorney's Office. His name is Bill Mitchell. And Mitchell had had, within the last year or so, had had a case where uh, there was no body that was recovered. So let me be more specific about that. He was prosecuting a murder case where a woman, a caregiver, was accused of killing an older man, um, but that body was never found. And he still was able to take that case to trial and secure a conviction. So Parga looked at this and said, you know, maybe that's the prosecutor who can take a fresh look at this Jahi Turner case and see if he can take this case to trial. And that's what happened. When I spoke to Bill Mitchell about this, you know, why, why in 2014, which is when the arrest of the stepfather was made, um, you know, why was something different in 2014 versus back in 2002? And what he said to me was, essentially there was a different kind of, uh, uh, prosecutorial mindset. That's a quote. That's that's what he said to me. Um, that back in 2002, they would have wanted to wait. In fact, they did wait. You know, can we get some more? Can we get somebody to come forward? Can, you know, maybe if we wait a little longer, some new evidence will emerge. But it didn't happen. So what Mitchell was telling me much later was that, you know, in 2014 and on, the DA's office was in a different mindset that allowed them to say, we can go with what we have now. We can take that to trial and we feel that we can be successful. It didn't turn out the way that they expected it to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the evidence that you know was presented that led to, to Ray Jones being arrested was kind of tied to that Golden Hill apartment. Can you explain those pieces of evidence and namely those journal entries? Well, there were uh, there was a journal that the couple kept, um, and there were entries that he had put into the journal while Tamika Jones was on the ship. 
And so, you know, basically there were things about, you know, his interactions with Jahi and, you know, Jahi was fussy today and, you know, Jahi slid off the bed, things like that, you know, had a little bump on his head. Um, so they had all, they, excuse me, they being the investigators and the prosecutors had all of this information in 2002. What they said was different later on, years later, was that they believed that Tamika was in a better state of mind to actually take a look at that evidence and to help them put it in context. Um, they said Tamika was in a better state of mind where she could tell them more of the circumstances that existed in the day before she left to go get on the ship, um, like she had been ordered to do. For example, um, how much food she had bought. You know, she she had a little bit of money that was left over from donations that she had received. Basically, her shipmates passed the hat and collected this money for her um, because that couple was broke at the time. And um, she she used most of that money that she had to to buy groceries for the week. And there was nothing left over. And so with that kind of frame of reference, the investigators were looking at how much food was in the house and they basically figured out that they didn't believe Jahi had been in the home as long as Tyree Jones, the, uh, the stepfather, had said he had been. So let me try to clarify that just a bit more. The investigators were saying that they believed, based on these bits and pieces of evidence, they believed that Jahi had actually disappeared or something had happened to Jahi days before Tyree had reported him missing. And so they said this was one of several inconsistencies in the information he gave to police. I should say here, though, that Tyree Jones has always maintained that he is, that he is innocent of this crime. Mm -hmm. And was that the main argument that the prosecution made against Tyree? Well, yes. They said that, you know, the evidence points to something happening to this boy. Um, and, and I know that sounds vague, but um, the evidence points to something happening other than him being kidnapped from the park, which was what the stepfather had said, that, you know, somebody had probably taken him. The boy had vanished when uh, Tyree's back was turned, when he had gone to get the, the drink for this little boy. And so there were other pieces of evidence. Um, there was some clothing, for example, um, found in child's clothing, found in a dumpster at the apartment complex where this couple had lived. Um, and Tamika later, um, when she was participating in a different way in the investigation, she was able to identify those pieces of clothing that were taken from the dumpster as belonging to Jahi. And of course, DNA testing was done and, and that was all confirmed. Um, so this added to the prosecution's theory that something wasn't adding up in what the stepfather was saying. These clothes were discarded. Um, and you know why were they discarded? Why, why would they end up in the dumpster? There was some explanation um, that came out in trial that, you know, it was because the boy had outgrown the clothing, that sort of thing. 
Um, so these pieces of evidence taken together, the prosecution argued that some, they, they argued that it was pretty clear that Jahi was dead, even though there was no body recovered. And they said the evidence pointed to the stepfather as having committed second degree murder. That is not what conclusion was, was uh, come to, you know, at the end of the trial. Essentially, the jury did not reach a verdict. They could not decide unanimously whether he was guilty or not guilty of that particular crime. The jury hung. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like just hearing that explanation, there's so many points that are confusing and so many points that are suspicious that it's not really surprising that the jury came to that verdict. Well, yes, I mean, and it was. I remember on the day that the um, verdict came out, um, Pauline Reppard worked for the Union Tribune, was the one who covered that verdict. Um, And it was a little bit confusing how it was um, relayed to her and later to me, um, only because, you know, we knew that the jury hung, but we were also being told um, by the lawyers who talked to the jurors afterward, which does happen quite often, um, that they were told that of the 12 jurors, 10 had found that uh, he was not guilty of murder. Two had found or, or, or you know, voted to find him guilty. Um, and then, but of course that is not a unanimous decision. And then there had been some discussion of a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. And the idea there would be that something happened where the boy was hurt and the stepfather failed to get proper medical care right away. Um, So eight of the jurors felt that some kind of scenario that fit the description of of involuntary manslaughter was probably the case. However, what they were to consider was guilt or not guilt as relates to second degree murder. Um, The lawyers were also told that there were two jurors who firmly believed that Mr. Jones, Tyree Jones, was not guilty of this crime. And they never Mm -hmm. wavered from that. Mm -hmm. And now uh, coming back to today, um, why did Tamika Jones want to speak out now? She, as you can well imagine, and I tried to convey in the story, um, she has had an extremely difficult time for all of these years. You know, from the moment, of course, that she was told that her son was missing, um, it has been a long, hard road for her um, in a lot of different ways. She was very young when this happened, 18 years old. I believe she turned 19 when she was still very much in the thick of this in San Diego. Um, feeling very much alone except for her husband at the time, Tyree Jones. Um, And she stood by him at that time. And so talking later, she, she mentioned how judged she felt at that time and how alone Um, There were a couple of times way back then when, you know, on the advice of police, she did give a couple of public interviews. Um, But again, she felt very uneasy about that. Of course, they wanted her to do those interviews, you know, in the hopes that it would prompt someone to come forward with information about her little boy. Um, And Tamika was not then and really is not now a person who was seeking that kind of 
spotlight. So all of these years passed. She was, um, she testified in trial. That was the only other time where she has spoken publicly about this whole ordeal. Um, so during her testimony in the courtroom, but she didn't give any interviews with media at that time or afterward um, until she came to me. So what I was told, what she told me was that for all that time, she felt judged. She felt like she didn't get the opportunity to really say her piece, to say what she had been through, to say what this experience was like, to you know not only get this off her chest, but to um, make people understand her better. And she, the range of emotions that she described to me, of course, you know the 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 sadness, the anger that she has felt for a long time uh, directed toward a lot of different people and of course in toward herself has just been a lot for her to deal with. And she wanted to explain some of that. She, a, a, about a year after the trial had ended, um, she, she felt like it was time when she could have the power, have the strength to tell her story in her own words. Yeah, and it's uh, you know really commendable that she stepped forward because in times like these, uh, the more disturbing parts of society come out in which they'll put blame on a mother who has been through this, which is something we should never do, but it happens. And hopefully through speaking and you know finally being able to tell her story, she feels a bit of catharsis because she certainly deserves at least some after all these years. Yeah, um, you know she she just she wanted to be heard in a way that she felt comfortable. It's a little strange to say comfortable because, you know, she 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 didn't know me um, and she's taking the step of talking to a stranger to talk about things that are deeply, deeply personal to her. Um, but this was something that she was willing to do and something that she felt she needed to do. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that she allowed me uh, to be the person to listen to her and help her tell her story. Mm -hmm. And since you published on Sunday, uh, have you heard from her? Yes, um, I exchanged a few messages with her this morning. Um, I wanted to kind of give her her space yesterday, so I, mm -hmm. I didn't reach out to her right away. Um, but she said that the story was accurate. She said that the story um, did do a good job of telling how she felt and what she had been through for all of that time. And as a writer, um, that meant the world to me. Um, you know, you want to get it right. And she at least felt that I got it right. So I'm grateful to her for that. Um, it took a while to get this story in the paper and post it online. Um, we had a few conversations over, you know, many, many, many months. There was a lot of waiting because, uh, you know, other duties got in the way or other stories got in the way. We were really waiting to find the right time to run this story. And I think this was the right time. So I'm grateful to her, not only to talking with me, but expressing or, or showing a lot of patience waiting for that to all come together. You know, she'd waited 18 years and had to wait few more months and and that uh, that kind of tore at me for a while but I think in the end she was happy with the result. 
Mm-hmm. And kind of looking at uh, this narrative, this tragedy from kind of a higher view, in what ways do you think that the San Diego of 2002 was different from the one in 2020 in which that decisions made may have not have occurred if this tragedy happened now versus 18 years ago? It's, it's hard for me to say, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, um, you know, I do my own kind of poking around and investigating, but, you know, I'm not a police investigator. Um, you know, I'm not a missing persons investigator. Um, so I, I'm not too, I, I would feel uncomfortable speaking about the actual tactics that were used here. Um, it seemed to me then, as it does now, that police did quite a lot to, um, to try and find this boy and to try to find who was responsible for Jahi going missing. Um, the key difference, it seems, is, you know, should they have gone, and by they I mean prosecutors, should they have gone to trial, you know, in 2002 or maybe 2003, excuse me, should they have filed charges in 2002 or 2003 uh, versus waiting many, many years? Again, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, just like I'm not a police investigator, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a prosecuting attorney. Um, I can tell you that um, it, 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 I didn't, a lot of people, I think it's fair to say, were waiting for some kind of, you know, pardon the expression, but smoking gun. What is this big, huge thing that made them decide now's the time? And I don't think there was anything like that. Um, and again, referring to my interview with Bill Mitchell, um, he said, you know, even though it was extremely helpful to them to uh, have Tamika's participation um, in more recent years, you know, they they there were certain things like the diary, diary they already had that. There were, there were a lot of things that they already had. And so the key difference here was mostly that prosecutorial mindset that Mitchell explain to me, you know, that's the difference here. Um, should they have gone to, to trial then? Should they have filed charges then? You know, that's for someone else to decide, I guess. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, events like these cause some real cultural trauma. They really sink into the collective memory of a place. And do, what in what ways do you feel that this tragedy has changed San Diego? Because, you know, this is one of the one of the most sad stories I think this region has experienced in some time. Oh yeah, it's it's certainly up there, and um, you know, we've had especially you know around that time we had you know more than one um, case, high profile case where you had a young person go missing. Um, there were high profile cases before then where you had young people go missing famous cases where, you know, a young, young girl went missing, 12 year old girl in, in Escondido. Um, so these things do leave an impression on a community. There is no doubt. I remember people saying to me, and I'm not, I'm not arguing with the point, um, or at least I'm, I'm trying not to. I've had people over many years say to me, well, you know, Nobody paid attention to Jahi's case. Um, you know, it didn't get the kind of attention that the Danielle Van Dam case got, or later on, you know, the disappearance of, of 
Chelsea King and Amber Dubois. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable making that comparison, but I understand where people are coming from and why they're they're saying that. Um, I guess this is where I have to admit to you know anybody watching this. This is where you know my personal experience as a reporter starts to bubble up because I know many people who I talk to, many people in the newsroom then and now, who always cared about this case and who always. Um, you know, it was kind of somewhere in the back of, of mind. Um, the difference here, there are, there are a few differences, but one key difference is that, you know, in, in a lot of those cases, um, you had a body mm. and you never got that answer here with Jahi. And as incredibly frustrating as that is for a community, it obviously pales in comparison to what his mother has gone through and everyone else who knew and loved that little boy. And so um, I guess, you know, that's just my my two seconds on the soapbox is, you know, I'm, I'm the one who always wants to say, you know, but we do care about Jahi. We do care about his story. Mm -hmm. And he won't be forgotten. Correct. Dana Littlefield, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you want to include the San Diego Union Tribune in your morning routine, check out our daily flash briefing. Every weekday morning, hear a quick summary of the day's top stories. Just search San Diego Union Tribune wherever you get your podcasts, including smart speakers. Until next time.